Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Today's guest on the show is the pioneering art gallerist Maureen Paley. Raised in New York by Anglophile parents, she moved to London in the late 70s to chase her love of the London music scene, while also attending the Royal College of Art. By the early 80s, she'd opened her gallery in East London, long before East London was de rigueur, and over the years has seen it grow into an international-facing name in the art world that has nurtured an impressive roster of artists including Gillian Waring and Wolfgang Tillmans. We sat down to look back at her life and career and talk about some of the things that inspire her. Maureen Paley, hello. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to be here. And welcome to Five Carlos Place, where we're recording in Mayfair. Um, I understand it's your first time visiting the space. Yes. Well, I know the area here quite well. So I haven't visited um, Five Carlos Place, but um, I've been in the vicinity because I actually come and visit a number of the people who have um, their their shops here. And I actually go and see people at uh, Erdem, um, at uh, Simone Rocha, Roxander Linsick, Nicholas Kirkwood. And Christopher Kane. Um, and many of the people who are in this street have really had a lot to do with people in the art world, um, have come to the gallery, um, in some cases collect from me, and it sort of means that this this neck of the woods is something that I'm quite familiar with. Mm, it's a lot of crossover. Are you particularly interested in fashion yourself? Well, I would say that fashion interests me, but it's not just fashion as such. Um, I'm really interested in the idea of self presentation and sort of style as opposed to fashion. So I think that when you, and in my case from a young age, you know, develop the way you look and how you are, um, a lot of that involves fashion, but it's not only about that. And I think that um, somehow certain like talismans objects, things that you wear, things that you own and have all fit together as a bit of a set piece. And I'm very, very interested in something that maybe in a sustainable way goes beyond like just temporary seasonal fashion and really is much more to do with your um, established look. Yeah, it's almost you could say it's more about style than trends. Um, Are there any particular pieces that you have a very distinctive look I'd say with your sort of half up beehive and all black do you always wear tend to dress top to toe black well I try to diversify okay. and I, I don't want to only be wearing black but one of the things I think that the Japanese have a, a sort of sense about black and blackness and what it is and I think one of the things to do with elegance and like let's say an absence of color but for me when I look at the things I wear that are black, there's always a lot of texture, there's things going on where there's different like kind of types of black. Um, and what I also see is that I'm 
especially in the art world, I'm very aware that the art is filled with, you know, the colour, the expression, and is the thing that should be the spectacle. And if you make yourself into, like, the spectacle, as it were, that's really um, not something that I would in every way wish to do. So the thing that I like is... Um, seeing it that you can wear black and that can somehow allow you to be both visible and invisible. And I think that it's it's something that's evolved over a long, long time, um, probably going all the way back to childhood where I dressed as a black cat for Halloween and thought this was wonderful. Um, but it's also something that um, I like because the things that, the pieces that I have, I do save over time. And I choose them with a sense of them being more classic and then really, you know, kind of enjoy that I have things that go all the way back and can go back as far as like 20 or 25 years and I still wear them. And I kind of see all that as fitting together with one's identity. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of not only blackness that mm. I draw, I'm drawn to, but it's, it's, it's something more um, to do with how that fits in relation to where I am in relation to other things. And if you could choose one of those pieces to represent the wardrobe that we could put into our attic upstairs, what would that be, do you think? Is there a particular designer or...? Well... I would say that um, one thing that I have that kind of is set together with the clothing that I wear, because a lot of the things I wear are quite generic and they're things that, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to and then I layer. Um, but I have this one ring that I wear and I love it very, very much. And it's actually got a green amethyst in it and it has two skulls on the side and it's a copy of a Victorian ring. And I'm very intrigued um, with things that actually have... Um, that sort of relationship to the occult and things that have relationship to um, kind of um, maybe something that is meant to give you protection and and um, a special sense of inner uh, yeah like kind of inner relationship to the thing you're wearing mm, mm, it's like an amulet yes amulet yeah. exactly mm. You mentioned the black cat costume, and I know you were born in New York, where they obviously celebrate <laughs> Halloween in, a, a, a lot more flamboyantly, or certainly back then, than they do now, although it's something that's grown here a lot too, of course. Um, give me a flavour of what your upbringing was like. Well, you know, it was interesting because I really, I grew up outside of New York, um, but I always had the sense, my parents were quite Anglophile, and they really did, like, do things that were kind of, like, introducing us at a very young age to a sense of the world outside of where I was growing up. Um, my dad loved... Um, actually kind of um, British sports cars and was like fascinated by them and my mum also was very very aware of um, you know things English so my dad would listen as well to to the goon show and kind of love Peter Sellers and you know there was all these things that were being introduced in the home and I was thinking about this because along with like reading the New Yorker magazine um, they were also um, subscribing to Punch 
So I think the fact that I got this kind of childhood upbringing that was about seeing things in the city in New York, they were very big on you know bringing us to look at a great deal of culture there, things that we ought to see, things that we ought to do, and then also like the idea that we would eventually travel and go beyond like the confines of, of, of suburban, you know, outside of, 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 of a suburban um, setting outside of New York City. Mm. And you eventually, after university, I'm not sure how long after university it was, but you moved over to London. Yes. Well, the thing that was interesting was that I had gone to Sarah Lawrence College and then I went to Brown University. And um, if you had said to me at the time that I would end up spending the rest of my life in, in London and in, in, in Great Britain, I don't know if I would have believed that that was true. So if you had a crystal ball and it said that would happen, I think I would have been maybe a bit skeptical. But one of the things that drew me to London in 1976 for my first mm -hmm. visit was actually punks and seeing a picture of um, at, on the back of the Herald Tribune, in fact, of Vivian Westwood and Jordan, um, the model that she was kind of, you know, everybody was aware of in London at the time. And um, I remember saying, I really want to go. I want to see what that's all about. It looks amazing. I don't know. You know, I really have to see what this is. And then when I got here, that was it. I was smitten. And I was so intrigued about it. I just thought, if we could stay for at least one year, um, that would be great. So I wanted to stay for one year. And that year turned into a lifetime. So it was quite interesting because I was in my very early 20s. It was the perfect time to have come over. I love music as much as I love art and I'm very interested in all things to do with music. So I was listening to all the bands. I really wanted to go see the Pistols play, which I did. I got to see The Clash. You know, I got to see The Stranglers. You know, I was going to see like a lot of things. And in those days, you didn't have mobile phones and you couldn't look on the internet. So everything was word of mouth. And I remember heading to King's Road because I wanted to go see Vivian shop and I was really intrigued to kind of go out to World's End and view it. Um, I also went to Boy at the time and then just was kind of wandering around and like, you know, Kensington Market, Hyper Hyper, all those places. Um, I think it's really interesting that that was my introduction and then I applied to the Royal College of Art and everything was kind of done in increments and sort of adding on and one of the things about that was I got into the Royal College of Art and I said if I get in and get accepted I'll stay another two years so everything was adding on another year and another thing that I could do and because that was so near to King's Road and so near to the scene as it were um, I was able to kind of see a lot of things there and be exposed to those things and those things then also had a lot of influence upon my more gothic punk twisted look and so all those things were like kind of woven together mm. i have to ask um what was it like going to a sex pistols concert it was so chaotic and mm. so intense i cannot tell you mm. it was which actually, venue do you remember i went to the vortex back in the day and the thing was that they were around and about i mean you'd go to the marquee you'd go to different 
places mm. and they were roundabout. They were also, you know, kind of going over to New York and yeah. I remember actually I was recently talking to somebody about Malcolm McLaren because well after the pistols had disbanded and things, I was thinking that he, one would get asked to go to like secret gigs and you'd go to see things and I was thinking about how like after the Royal College I got taken to what was Whiskey A Go Go which became the WAG Club and we went to see um, Grandmaster Flash and Africa Bombata doing scratching and the first kind of introduction of this music to London. And there must have been, because Hazy Fantasy were there and Malcolm was there and this one was there, but really it was a tiny, tiny group of people who kind of were, you know, like there seeing this. Um, and I was thinking about so many things being word of mouth. You'd meet people in Soho, you'd go to the French house, you'd go to the Coach and Horses, and you'd also go to Patisserie Valerie. And we would talk about how in Patisserie Valerie you'd manage, which was quite extraordinary, to eat like all day a cup of tea and one toasted sandwich <laughs> and you just draw it out for the whole day till it was time to go for drinks. It was like 50, 50 p or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you were just so delighted that you could do this yeah. and you'd see everyone you needed to see there. Um, and I was thinking about that because it was kind of in the Royal College of Art time. I was there from 78 to 80. And then sort of shortly after that continued this procedure of how you kind of wandered around and did things. And I didn't set the gallery up until 1984. But I think all that lead up time meant that I was becoming more and more part of what was the real like scene as opposed to doing everything as an outsider. And I'm now, you know, British citizen, I'm glad to say, so I'm a dual oh, yeah. Did you have to do that test where they asked you I about the Queen? I did all that, and everything yeah. kind of was put in place, and <laughs> only last year did I finally um, do it. But it seemed long overdue. Um, but it was also really important to me to kind of acknowledge where I've spent the whole of my life, you know, and what has really shaped me um, in some ways more than, than, than being in the States. So, yeah. You were talking about being at the Royal College and hanging out in Soho in the West End. What drew you to East London at that time? Well, I'll tell you, I came to East London actually in 1977. And one of the things that had happened when I visited in 76 is that I was thinking about how I might be able to continue living in London. And I ran into someone in Covent Garden at the time and I was visiting the Acme Gallery that was in Shelton Street. And I had gone there because I was fascinated with the scene here. I wanted to know more about galleries that were existent. I was very interested in spaces that were publicly run as along with commercially run or privately run. So I was always interested in project spaces and I began my space more as a project space. So I went to that gallery and someone said to me, you know they have a housing association and you can get houses from them that you can use as studios. So I just kind of made an inquiry there and I was really doing it so tentatively and really having no idea as to whether I'd stay or not or what it was. And then it turned out that they said, you know, if I was an artist, which I considered myself to be at the time, and, you know, I was going to be studying, whatever, they might be able to help me. And then they did find a premises that I could 
I could move to. And it was a house that was a Victorian terraced house in the East End. It's where I began my first gallery. And I went there. It was so derelict. It was untrue. It was just like really, really, really quite extraordinary. Was there anything else there then? (laughs) Well, there were other houses. It certainly was not Broadway Market as we know it today. Um, Columbia Road existed. Brick Lane existed because they're old markets. And, you know, they were wonderful. And and Broadway Market existed in its most early kind of form. Um, In fact, there were these men who were like smoking fish in this kind of tumble-down, you know, sort of space that doesn't exist any longer that was in Broadway Market. Mm. So it really looked like you were going back in time into the 19th. 30s. It didn't look as if it was in the present day. But I remember that when I went to visit the street, um, I was shown the house by the artist Richard Deacon, who was working for Acme at the time, which was quite incredible. <laughs> and um, then, while looking at this house and debating whether I should even think of being there or not, um, Helen Chadwick went past on a motorcycle because she was living up the street and then she came walking back down and said, well if you do take the house I'll show you the ropes, I'll show you where you need to go and we can get sinks from Brick Lane and I'll take you to you know, Columbia Road where you can get your flowers. And so all of a sudden it seemed like there was a sense of community surrounding that road from very little kind of indication and I thought well I'll take the plunge I'll do it and then I haven't looked back but it was quite incredible because the house needed so much to just become even habitable and um, it was it was it was very interesting to do that while while also studying at the at the Royal College and now I have such a fondness for the area and I've kind mm. of remained in the area even though I travel extensively and you know kind of a here, there, and everywhere. Um, it's very, very special. You're not tempted to open some a place in Mayfair or well, no. What I did, which is kind of another interesting thing, it's the part of me that might have done that, is that I have a place in Hove, and I have which a is near there. Brighton, yes, yeah, exactly. on the south coast, yeah, exactly. And I um, have. A gallery there that I've opened, which is called Marina de Luna, which is a name that Wolfgang Tillmans, one of my artists that I've worked with since, you know, the early 90s and met in the late 80s, um, he has referred to me as Marina de Luna. I asked him if I could use that name. It's the dark-haired one of the moon. And um, we have done a number of shows there for the last three years. And that is a Regency space. It's very different to the space that I have in the East End in London near Bethnal Green. It's sort of not a white cube or white box. Um, And that has a lot of what you find here in Mayfair about it. Um, So it allows the artists that work with me a different location. And I've had a place down in in Hove for the last 16 years. And so what it means is that um, Those two places now, the East End and that, are woven together in my life. And really, um, a lot of Brighton has crept in, a lot of Brighton and Hove has crept in to um, my life here. London life is, as we know, quite intense. And it's filled with, you know, traffic and demands and sort of lots of things that you need to navigate. And then when you go down there, just getting this kind of look out to the sea, and the gallery looks right onto the sea, and sort of looking out to the channel, um, and having these, this, this horizon line, it really is life-changing, and it kind of has um, 
given me a very, very different perspective. And it also allows the gallery to um, expand without doing that w within London or, or any other part of the world. Do you feel like there is an art community down there that you're part of, or do you feel like you're in very much acting as a sort of satellite gallery to what's happening in London? Well, I think the answer would be both, actually, because one of the things I think that's made it possible to do it down there is that because of the art college, because of Sussex University, because of so many different people who are curators and all the things that are surrounding that that space I have in the South Coast. So having Pallant House and Simon Martin living actually in Brighton, um, having, you know, Charleston nearby and the curators living, you know, also nearby, um, having a sense that, you know, the art college has like people who remain in the town and a number of artists living there with different studios that exist that people have. It's a sympathetic town to both like the arts of all sorts. So music, theatre, um, fine art is all kind of something that people are very sympathetic to there. Um, I also find that the artists who come to visit from abroad really love it. And I love that I can actually show people internationally and introduce them to that, and they don't always know it. Um, and one of the things that everyone adores visiting is, um, you know, the Prince Regent's like pavilion. And the pavilion is just filled with so many things that are like extraordinary to look at. Um, and so one of, of the things that, you know, one does continuously is support the pavilion and go down and have a look at it. You mentioned Wolfgang Tillmans, and I know that listeners of this podcast would love to hear a bit more about your relationship with him, and how did you meet him? Well, it's very interesting, because Wolfgang is a very adventurous soul, and uh, he came to see me in the late 80s, and I was in Hamburg at a fair, and he came to see me at my stand, and he had heard about the work I was doing in the gallery, because at that time I was importing a lot of things, and I was actually working, as I said, more as a project space. So he really felt that he wanted to meet me, and he wanted me to be aware of his work, and he wasn't yet fi finished with his college days. So he came by, and he was so kind of extraordinary, I remember his aura then and the fact that he had this kind of like confidence about him but also just an openness about him and he asked me if he could show me some work. Now when I'm at an art fair now that's like really quite impossible, one is incredibly busy, it's not something that you can entertain as much but going all the way back then he was so fascinating and he showed me these pictures many of which went on to become well-known images, but I remember thinking at the time that they were really quite intriguing. So the way that it happened was that we established our friendship or our kind of meeting, and then he said that he was thinking of going to study in Great Britain and that he was really quite intrigued with going to Bournemouth College and wanted to go because he had heard that Nick Knight was there and Nick Knight had studied there and he liked a book that Nick Knight had produced and he thought it would be interesting to possibly go. It had happened that I had lectured there a little bit and I had been talking at different places so I had actually spoken at Goldsmiths and at Chelsea and at the Slade and had done things at different colleges when I was setting up the gallery in the very early days and so for me um, 
I had some knowledge about like what these places might be like. And I sort of encouraged him and said, if you get in, you could come and visit me in London and, and do come by and, you know, like speak with me again sometime. Be lovely to meet up again. And then he contacted me. And again, I have to think how, because one well, didn't have computers. We didn't have, you know, there were phones. He might have written me a postcard. I'm not even sure how he made contact. And he said he did want to come by and that he had gotten into Bournemouth. And then we sort of did a series of visits in London. And he started to show me more and more things that he was doing. Um, he also started to do a little bit of work at the time for ID magazine. And I remember him coming to show me certain pictures that he'd made for the magazine. And I remember thinking that in this instance, in this particular instance, these things were able to be shown outside of the confine of the magazine. And there was an opportunity that I had around like at the end of the 80s, sort of maybe 89 into 90, um, but kind of actually, no, moving a little bit forward, it probably was about like 1992 or so. I'd seen the images, but we were able to show one of them, which became quite iconic of Lutz and Alex sitting in the trees at something called the Unfair in Cologne. And as it happened, the Unfair invited me and at the time Jay Jopling to do this fair that was an anti-fair fair. And I presented this image of Wolfgang's there and then the rest kind of grew out of that. By 1993 I'd given him a solo show at the gallery, we started to really work together and I loved that our relationship established itself in a more organic way and it wasn't really kind of led by sort of other things. It was very much about seeing how he was growing and how the work was growing. And then we've kept in close contact over all these years and continue to show him continuously at the gallery. Um, but I love the early beginnings because they were so uh, open and so kind of real and really about his work and how he was. Mm. He's also, so, you've said in the past that you like to work with artists or you tend to work with artists who have a social conscien consciousness. And I know um, Wolfgang, he has this um, very engaged audience on his Instagram account and he's, a, he's quite vocal about Brexit. And he talks a lot about that. Um, and I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about that with regards to some of your other artists, moving away from Wolfgang now maybe, yeah. um, how important that is to you. Well, one of the things I think I've been aware of is that um, with people like Gillian Waring, um, you know, who I work with for sort of same as amount of time as Wolfgang and, you know, met in 1992 and I've been working with and shown since like 93, 94. Um, I think that it somehow is a stance or a natural kind of positioning for a lot of the artists that I work with and even their social concerns are there aside from only being political. They have like concerns with society and how things evolve and what's going on. So so when Gillian Waring was commissioned to do the um, sculpture that she made of Millicent Fawcett um, for Parliament Square, and it was the first sculpture of a woman that actually has been made to be be seated in or to be standing in Parliament Square. It's quite incredible and I think the fact that it says courage calls to courage everywhere
everywhere um, and that she did that with the understanding that the suffragists were fighting and, and working you know um, alongside the suffragettes to kind of further women's ability to vote and to kind of have a say and to be present in society. Um, that, together with Lawrence Abu Hamden, who we work with, who's nominated now for the Turner Prize and has also been very, very political and kind of socially concerned in his work, um, working with Amnesty International, feeling that he's made a contribution in that way as a kind of a private ear and kind of engaged in, in a lot of research that's been very, very instrumental for Amnesty um, and, and working together at times with forensic architecture who like engaged him in the first instance when he was, he was at Goldsmiths to um, work with their research as well. So I think that um, a number of the gallery artists really, you know, general idea who we work with and A.A. Bronson is someone too who is politically aware, is very, very aware of, of, of gender-based issues, things to do with AIDS, things to do with um, just how things evolve and how things are um, still ongoing in terms of the culture. It's ways that art situates itself but can highlight and maybe bring to light things that need to be spoken about and seen and I think that the bravery on the part of the artists that I work with to engage in these subjects but also one of the things that Lawrence says is that art isn't just about polemic so it isn't just about like having that political stance it's also meant to allow people to see that bit more so if it kind of remove some of the veil, it also has to kind of put the veil back to some extent and have some poetry within it. And I see it that a lot of the artists I work with are in many ways linked to poetry in terms of showing you fragments of the world and being very insightful about those fragments and illuminations around those fragments. So that to me is um, where it all like links together with other social concerns that might exist in the culture where people would choose to be politicians or choose to be uh, advocates or work in other ways. I think the people that I've selected see the meaning that is possible through art. And I think the fact that they can um, bring things to light through their work is, is really important to me. Wolfgang's show that he did around the time of Brexit was a, such a significant show. I mean, quite an incredible thing to have in the gallery. We felt really proud to present that work at that time. Mm. Well, Maureen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been thank wonderful you. having you. Thank, no, you. thank you. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website. And you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.